You're listening to Campus Review Radio. To register for our upcoming Higher Equity Summit, examining the various barriers to equality in higher education, visit campusreview.com.au and follow the links to Higher Equity Summit. Can you explain what open source research is and how it could lead to a cure for malaria? Well, open source is where you do research um, and share all of your data and ideas. Um, Anybody can take part in the research. um, And you don't take patents. That's at least my view of how you apply open source principles from software development to, uh, to doing scientific research. Um, the idea behind using this approach for malaria medicines was to see if we could all work together in real time by sharing everything to work towards new medicines for malaria um, using a, an approach which is distinct from the normal way we do things in the pharmaceutical industry. Why is the lack of patent so important? Well, if you want to share um, uh, and work with anybody in, in real time and share expertise and have everyone work on a problem, you can't really keep any secrets. Um, you can't delay findings because then you run the risk that people might start duplicating each other um, and not sharing their expertise. So you you do the science live on the web, essentially. And, uh, and that means that because you're disclosing things publicly, you can't um, take a patent. So it's not possible to um, to take a patent, you know, retrospectively. You have to sort of uh, do the research in secret and then take a patent out. So um, so the, it's the mechanism of how we did it. It means we, we couldn't take a patent. It's just not possible. And so and thus a big part of it is funding it in a crowdsourced way too. It, it's funding in the crowdsourced way, yeah. Well, we we got grants from the Australian Research Council and the Medicines for Malaria Venture in Geneva, who are funded by Gates and Diffid and people like that. And that funded the core of the project at the University of Sydney. Um, and then other labs in, in the pharmaceutical industry and in universities contributed resources, and, and they're funded by all kinds of, uh, all kinds of means. Um, and there were students who took part from universities um, who uh, were doing you know, formal educational activities. Um, and then there were people who just volunteered their time. So it really was quite a mixture of, of, um, of ways in which the, the, the work was funded. Certainly um, one of the key things about open source is that you, you do get contributions from a number of different places in the community. And it's very difficult to know where those will come from. But that's one of the real advantages. It's this kind of wisdom of the crowd idea. Is research almost peer-reviewed in real time as well, so as it, as it goes on? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because, because yes, that's what happens. Um, you, you put up the, the research in, in real time. So you do an experiment in the lab and, and you know, that afternoon you write it up and put the data on the web. Um, and you know, you're not asking anybody to, to peer review it, to check it. It goes up live. So it could be that the data are wrong. You know, it could be that you made a mistake or you, you, know, you made an, uh, a methodological error or you've assumed something incorrectly. So you, you have to sort of uh, assume that what happens over time is that, is that stuff is gradually, yes, peer-reviewed and is assembled into something which makes sense or doesn't. Um, we, we think it's very important at the end of a project or at certain you know, milestones in a project to, to write up a formal paper and submit it to a journal where it is peer-reviewed, where you do have the certainty that someone at least has checked it. 
and that's what we did uh, recently, and that's the paper that was published today, is, is something which which is a culmination of, of a project which has you know, kind of been peer-reviewed as it's been going along, because everyone can see everything, but, but at least now we know that somebody, at least two people, have read it absolutely and said, yes, this is fine. Yeah, because we, we do hear some stories about... Um research going all right because someone because because there's been an accident in research method someone's entered the wrong numbers or something so mm. could this open source method help prevent that because with people saying this maybe just doesn't make sense it's very interesting i mean it depends on the quality of the reviewing you get and that can be from anywhere um submitting a journal submitting an article to a journal where it's formally peer-reviewed is no guarantee of course that anyone has actually checked the detail and and spotted mistakes um Putting up a data set immediately online, you could have made a mistake. Um, I think that the transparency of the research data um, helps in open source. So you, you put up everything you've done. Um, that includes all your working and all the data that you've acquired, positive data and negative data. And of course, anybody can check it and anybody can take the data and reanalyze it and reshape it. Um, to check that it's okay. So that I think the transparency is the key thing, that if anybody wanted to check the data, they can. Um, and it makes the peer review process, I think, quite straightforward because you can see everything. Um, there's no sense, for example, that sometimes when you read a paper that you've been asked to peer review, you, you wonder how many failed attempts there were at the research and whether the one you're reading is the one that went right. In the case of open source, you can see all of those failed attempts. Um, so you can see if the data that you're being asked to look at are, are unusual or, or not. Um, so I think uh, you've always got to be careful about about um, whether something is true or not, or whether something is real or not. But at least open source gives you that extra level of of guarantee because of the the transparency. I think you still need those um, the professional bodies and the journals at the end of the day to make sure that someone who knows what they're talking about has looked at the research before it's published. Well, I think I think that really helps um, on, on a couple of levels. One is that yes, you you guarantee that there are a couple of people who have anonymously looked at the work and checked it and and been you know ruthless about it. That that's the idea. It doesn't guarantee that's happened, but you know it often it does. Um, and, and secondly, it's important to to have another place where where a story is written up, which is easy to understand. Um, you know, an open source project is very kind of rambling in its nature. It takes place over a long period of time, and there are lots of things that are being done. Uh, and so writing up a paper really helps to tell a narrative. And, of course, the journal plays a, an important role in the permanence of that narrative. So it, it means that that's a place where everything is put for in perpetuity. So there are still important roles, I think, for the journals here, um, even if much of the research is doesn't actually reach the paper and is, is stored elsewhere. Regarding intellectual property, do, the, do researchers involved in this open source research get get defensive about their parts of the research and say, and say, no, this was my contribution, I should be attributed to this? Well, uh, attribution is, is key to the whole thing. So everything that is done um, has an author, you know, a contributor. Um, every experiment, there's a name associated with it. So we know where everything comes from. When people contribute things, their name is put to that, 99% of cases. In the, in the really early days, when we first started doing open source research about 10 years ago, there were lots of um, uh, anonymous contributors. But now it, it's pretty rare. Um, people, are, I think, are, are more comfortable taking their, their identity with them online. So now everything is, is attributed, and, and um, the people who contributed significantly to this project um, that was published today uh, are on the paper. Uh, a lot of other people who contributed minor things are acknowledged. 
Um, so no, I think it's very important that that happens. Uh, but for the intellectual property um, and the ownership of anything, I think everyone who contributed understood at the start, because um, we made sure that, that people understood this, that um, that there are going to be no patents and, and no one's going to own the intellectual property here. It's going to be um, governed by a Creative Commons license, which means that anybody can take anything in the project and, and do whatever they want with it as long as we are all as a project uh, cited. So I think everyone was very clear about that. So I don't think anyone would come back now and say, hang on, I, I, I took part um, with the wrong idea in my mind. Can you just go over the research that was published in this paper? Sure. So um, there, were, there was an amazing paper published in 2010 by GlaxoSmithKline uh, where they took all of their molecules that they owned in their library of molecules and they screened it against malaria and they published thousands of molecules that looked really good um, that were able to kill the malaria parasite. Um, and we, uh, in about 2011, we took um, a couple of those. We identified a couple of those in their database and said, hey, look, these look pretty good. Let's try to convert these so-called hits um, into molecules that are more realistic as, uh, as drugs. So they're, they're, they're more soluble and they're, they're less toxic or they perform better when you put them in blood plasma and stuff like that. Uh, something called a, a hit-to-lead campaign where you take a, a starting point and you try and make it into a decent drug. And we worked on those for, for a couple of years, um, and we identified really great things about these molecules, and we made lots of variations in the structure of the molecules. They were extremely potent. Um, they had really good features uh, about them, which, which made them attractive as drug candidates. Um, but despite all of this work and all these people who contributed and all these molecules that were made by the community that, that sort of self-assemble around this project, we couldn't solve a couple of um, niggling technical problems with the molecules. Um, to do with, in fact, their solubility and, and how long they, they lasted in, um, in blood plasma. Um, so eventually we, we sort of took the decision to say, okay, let's park this series, let's stop for the moment. Um, anyone else can carry on because all the data is in the public domain, but we as a consortium are gonna move to a, a different project now, and, and that's what we did. So um, we decided to write up this series and, and finish it off, and, and that's what the paper is. So they're molecules that are very promising as anti-malarials, but we took the decision that we couldn't really carry on with them when there were so many other promising possible antimalarials um, lying around that we could uh, that we could turn to. A lot of this research just doesn't get to go ahead because it requires a lot of big money behind it, and um and a lot of the companies who who fund this research don't see the it doesn't provide a good return on investment for them. So could open source research be more of a counter to this? Yes. Well, that's the interesting question, really. So um, you know, most of the medicines that we that we take historically and now have been developed by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, that's just the system we encounter now. There's a, there's a secrecy system and we have patents and we have the pharmaceutical industry developing things. Uh, and some of the drugs are astonishingly good, right? I mean, amazing medicines that we can, that we can take as a result of that process. But, but the system underlying it, is, it has this weakness, as you say, that um, we need to have um, uh, that, that system develops medicines where there is a market. Um, because you invest up front and you need to make your money back and the investors in it need some guarantee they're going to get their money back. So we don't have medicines for Ebola and Zika um, and we shouldn't be surprised at this because uh, there's no market there. Uh, malaria is a bit like that too. Tuberculosis is another one. Um, you know, lots of neglected tropical diseases have no medicines for them. Um, and on the other side of things, there, there's, there's diseases where medicines are extremely risky because the science is poorly understood. So dementia is a classic case. No one really knows what Alzheimer's is. And so developing a medicine for it is really hard. Um, so in these cases, you know, you, you do have a problem where the pharmaceutical industry finds it difficult to operate. Um, and so that's a, a system where I think you could try a different model. Um, and many people say, well, we should do this via, you know, public money. 
um, instead, because then you don't have this problem of there being a, a market that you need. Um, but many people then sort of assume, oh, we should just use public money to, to do the same thing as the pharmaceutical industry and operate the same way. And I guess the open source approach is, is trying to make people aware that if you use public money, you don't really need secrecy anymore. Um, you can all work together at the same time and, and, and try to crowdsource the solution. Um, you can be radically transparent. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, that's the power of the suggestion is that open source is, is the complete counterbalance to the pharmaceutical industry um, and yet is not currently employed um, at all on, on, on any projects, I think, apart from ours, where you, you have this, this total transparency and total inclusivity. Um, I, I think it could be a real counter to, to the traditional way of doing things. And I think then you, you set up this interesting competition between the two where you can have the farmer industry looking at things and they'll do that very well. And, and open source could look at certain things and, and we could have a you know, this sort of competition of ideas. Why hasn't open source been um, basically taken up by a lot of researchers? You know, it's, really, it's a really interesting question. I don't know. I, I think you know, we needed the internet first um, because that allows people to communicate in real time. Um, and so that's happened, which is useful. And we've, you know, we've got things like social media now, so people are able to communicate with each other very well. We have very efficient ways of, of uh, depositing and archiving and indexing data. Um, so it, it, the infrastructure is all there. And I guess maybe it's psychologically people are, are catching up with the idea that uh, you know, if we share everything, um, you run the risk of being scooped and you run the risk that people might take what you've done and run with it. But I think that the advantages are so clear now that your science will go faster if you involve everybody, um, that maybe it's just a matter of time and people will come around to this idea that, that um, science will go faster if you, if you share what you're doing. Um, we're still cleaved to this idea that you need secrecy um, in universities as well as the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, so I think maybe it's not it's not a technical challenge. It's more of a kind of psychological and legal one. And do you think the pharmaceutical industry and other pr- practitioners of more traditional research will be against this idea? No. Well, that's not our experience at all. Um, so one of the the um, the most uh, the commonest form of contributor that we get really in, in these projects is is from the pharmaceutical industry. We get a lot of input from the pharma guys, um, both officially, uh, you know, via experiments and. Uh, uh, an official advice uh, and, and unofficially where people I think are using their spare time. Um, I think the people in the pharmaceutical industry and in, and in universities, they, they want to uh, contribute to science projects. I mean, who doesn't? You know, we're all nerds and geeks at heart. You know, we want to do science research. Um, and if we see somebody doing something that we could do better, we, we just want to jump in. So, you know, the, the enthusiasm of people is not the problem. It's, it's more the financial and legal structure of the industry that, that operates behind that, that, that is inhibiting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I, I think that um, you've got a lot of enthusiasm from people, not all the time. I mean, it depends what you're asking. You know, people come and go with an open source project. It doesn't really have a fixed membership. Um, so people contribute when they feel they can and when they're able to for all kinds of reasons. Um, so, no, I don't think people are reticent, um, uh, certainly not the way that they used to be 10 years ago when the Internet was still kind of young. I think now people are quite happy to, um, to share and operate with people online that, they, that they maybe they don't know personally uh, and collaborate um, so long as all the data are shared. And could you explain the um, attitude 10 years ago? Oh, well, I think back in the day, um, the platforms that we used weren't particularly good for, for sharing data and discussing things. It was all a bit clunky. Um, we, we, the first open source project we did was with the World Health Organization that began about 10 years ago uh, on, on the synthesis of an existing drug. 
Um, and it was difficult to operate. It's just the, the, the stuff that we needed, the, the, the quali- you know, high-quality lab notebook on a web page didn't really exist, and, and, um, and ways of indexing molecules and stuff like that. Little technical things didn't exist, so it was all a bit clunky and, and slow. Um, and I think more people operated in, you know, anonymously on the web, and, and maybe there weren't that many scientists on the Internet. Um, but, but things have really changed now. I mean, I, the number of people who are online has grown, and, and, and many students of science have grown up with the web as being a place where you can work with people. Um, and these people are now coming through into sort of academic and, and industry positions. And I think they're just more comfortable with the idea of, of using the web as, as a collaboration place rather than just as an information resource. You know, we, we, we're all on Facebook and, and we, we think nothing of, of liking a photo in real time and, and talking about it. And, and suddenly when we do science that way, people maybe are, are less willing to share stuff. And I, I, I think that's, um, it's changing gradually year by year, and, and, and increasingly people are seeing the web as a, as, a, as a bona fide place to collaborate.